For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Glenn Scrivener. I'm talking today to Glenn Scrivener. He's actually a fellow Australian, although at the moment he's working in London. He's an ordained Church of England minister, and he directs the evangelistic ministry Speak Life. He's the author of several books, including his most recent, the air we breathe, how we all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress, and equality. I think you're going to enjoy this because it's an opportunity to engage with a really sparkling mind about some of the big issues that unquestionably worry any thinking or reflective person as we look at our societies around us today. Glenn, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Can we begin? Uh, you're a Christian believer and apologist and talker and writer, and you believe your message is highly relevant to today in an age when most people think it's irrelevant or something that we should ignore. Um, let's start by posing the simple question, who is this Jesus and why should anyone watching the show, listening to us, think he matters? Who is Jesus? I could give a historical and or I could give a theological answer to that question. Let me start with the historical because I think the historical answer poses a conundrum that the theological answer gives. Okay, The conundrum is this. Um, Jesus is hands down the most influential figure in human history. Um, He has caused the largest, most diverse sociological phenomenon that the world has ever seen to uh, appear on planet Earth. His revolution, the Jesus revolution, Christianity, has been the most disruptive, the most influential, the most enduring revolution in human history. It has upended our views, not only of God and the afterlife and all sorts of spiritual things, but even things like human rights and equality and compassion and uh, all kinds of moral visions for the world that we simply take for granted today. And the conundrum is, how is that possible when Jesus is a carpenter from Nazareth and you know, to, to modernize that, if Jesus came in the flesh today, it would be like Jesus being a car mechanic from outside Kharkiv in Ukraine, right? Under this foreign oppressor, uh, an absolute nobody, surrounded by no-hopers, he's executed in his 30s, tortured to death, and then he is the most towering figure in human civilization. That's the historical conundrum. How do you explain that? And I think the theological answer is that he is who he says he is that he is the, the king of the kingdom, he's the son of God, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And if that sounds absurd, I guess I would direct people back to the historical thing and think maybe the reason why this guy has made our world is because he is in fact our maker. He is in fact God in the flesh coming to planet earth to set things right. And so that's where I see the historical and theological coming together. And I think Christianity has answers for this world. 
The story is set out in the Bible. People of my generation, even if they didn't believe it, had a fair idea of what was in it. Hmm. That's washed out of our culture altogether. Mm-hmm. Bit of a problem, I think, really, if we're to understand our own culture. I guess, I guess. Uh, millions of people around the world have seen the coronation of, of King Charles in the, year, in the year of our Lord, 2023. You know, he was handed a Bible, which uh, as he was handed it, he, he said, this is the most valuable thing this world affords, which is an extraordinary thing to say when he's also given the crown jewels which are valued at somewhere around five billion pounds. And how is it that a, a, a book can be called the most valuable thing this world affords? Well, again, it's a, a book that has shaped our world more than anything else, that it's given rise to our whole conception of morality and politics and ethics. Uh, Jürgen Habermas, probably the, the, the most eminent living philosopher today, uh, said that the entire Western liberal tradition comes from the Judaic ethic of justice, i.e. the Old Testament, and the Christian ethic of love, i.e. the New Testament. And this book has in fact shaped our world in in ways that are so invisible to us because it has done such a good job. (laughs) Now we feel like, of course, we're individuals and we have human rights and we have, there's there's a division between the secular and the sacred. And of, of course, we talk about God rather than the gods and all these sorts of things. We take that for granted, but the only reason we can take that for granted is because the the Bible has done such a good job of embedding its worldview in the hearts and minds of of people all around the world. So is it ancient? Yes. Is it weird? Yes. Is it subversive? Absolutely. Um, But I I think the the success of the scriptures, the Bible, uh, are precisely because uh, we see their success in the fact that the the values that they've given to us are now natural, obvious, and universal. When the values that are actually inherent in, in, in the scriptures are anything but when you look with eyes from beyond uh, the, the reaches of Christianity. And so the Bible is an ancient, strange book, yes, but uh, I think going deep with it explains our world. Well, before we come to how it shaped our world and helped, why it helps us understand our world, can I just raised one issue that I know you'll have some interesting views on. There are still those who say it's incompatible with science. Science has disproved God. Um, I I can never quite understand that, to be really honest. (laughs) But I'd be interested in your take on it. It is a a bafflingly and infuriatingly universal view that, you know, when I talk to my friends who are not Christians, they won't so much say, um, I don't believe in God. They will say, I do believe in science, as though that's the end of the conversation. And so my, my friends will say, you know, I'm not a believer, I'm a scientist, which to me makes about as much sense of saying, I'm not a believer, I'm a chartered accountant. You're like, well, that's nice that you're a chartered accountant. I don't think that that is at odds with Christian faith. Where has this idea come from that there's a conflict between faith and science? And really, I think it's a relic of, of an old Victorian idea that was put out by some propagandists at the, at the end of the 19th century that said that there is a warfare between religion and science. And they predicted the, you know, the eventual winner to be science. And now we, you know, we've got iPhones in our pockets and we think, oh, science has won, God must have lost, as though that there's a conflict between these two, a tug of war in which if one wins, the other loses. But that's a hypothesis. Let's call it a hypothesis. And what we should do with hypotheses is kind of subject, it, subject them to scrutiny and see if the evidence stacks up. Well, the scientific method, you mean. Right, yeah. And, let, and let's, let's have a look at whether it is indeed true that science and, and religion are, are at war. And uh, 
how do you then explain the fact that 500 years ago the scientific revolution happened in Christian universities with Christians for Christian reasons, exploring the world according to a Christian worldview? Um, that has been the, the origins of this sort of scientific revolution in which we now sit. Uh, and, and I just don't think it stacks up to say that the, the two are in opposition to one another. Sometimes I, I tell the story of Betty the botanist, okay, to, to earth it. Okay, imagine Betty the botanist there in, in her laboratory. She's been there all night. She's been running these spectral analyses of this botanical specimen. She's mapped its genome. She's discovered pharmacological properties that will help us in the fight against Alzheimer's. And in the morning, Larry, the lab assistant, comes and says, Betty, what have you been doing? And she says, oh, thank you so much for the botanical specimen you gave me yesterday. It's going to help in, in the breakthrough uh, in, in all these different ways. And, and Larry, the lab assistant, says, Betty, yesterday was February the 14th. It was Valentine's Day. Um, I gave you a long stem rose. Do you understand what I gave to you? And my big question is, like, does Betty understand the rose? On the one hand, she understands it better than anyone ever has. On the other hand, Betty is a moron. And, and Betty just does not understand the true significance of the rose. Yes, it can be treated as, as a scientific specimen, but it's also a love gift that's communicating something about its giver. And then I just have to ask, is the world like that rose? If it is, then yes, you can do science on it. You can do great science on it. And, and Christians have always wanted people to do that. But that does not exhaust the meaning of the world any more than the DNA of the rose exhausts the meaning of the rose. So you can have faith and science together. There is no conflict. Yeah, it always strikes me that science can't explain existence any more than you can theologically. I mean, you've both, right. with our limited minds, the reality is that neither of us know either side right. can explain existence Right. Right. in terms of how it might have happened. Yes. One side could at least say that all of the extraordinary things that come together in existence were masterminded. Right. I mean, science helps us with all sorts of what and how questions. I think theologically, uh, we can think about the, the, the whys and the purposes of things. But the, the, the what and the how and, and the, the, the why and the purpose statements, they, they just exist at different levels. And we, we can't have both. <clears throat> now, Glenn, back to how Christianity has impacted our society. We live in a society where so many of our values, as you've already said, are actually derived from our Christian heritage, and yet that is discredited, it's not understood, it's scoffed at, because many people would say that, um, uh, that you know, what you're saying is interesting, but that Christianity's moral ideals are not only antiquated, they're actually oppressive. <laughs> yeah. So, um, would you yeah. sort of draw that out a little bit, and particularly, you know, you sort of stop and think, Progress, science, and the Enlightenment, I think you've been saying, mm -hmm. they're all derived from Christianity. Mm -hmm. Well, even the, the, the reason I chuckled when you said antiquated and oppressive mm -hmm. is that you are bringing to bear at that stage, and whoever the objector is, is bringing to bear at that stage some profoundly Christian intuitions about the church, right? And they're saying antiquated as though that's a bad thing. An ancient, an ancient Greek wouldn't think antiquated was a bad thing. They, think you would, they would think you were paying them a compliment. But this right? is quite recent. I'm sorry to interrupt. Mm. I hate doing that. But this is quite it. recent in our culture, isn't it? This idea that all wisdom resides in the now. Yes, yes. And history is bunk, yes. to quote Henry Ford. Yeah, yeah. It seems lethal to me because it opens a way for us to believe almost anything. It really does. And, and uh, I spoke of, of the coronation just recently, and, and uh, there was a brilliant little uh, interplay that happened online where Nick Cave, another great Australian, 
punk rocker in the 80s and an incredibly rebellious figure all throughout his career, um, he was you know, tapped on the shoulder and said, why don't you go to the coronation along with the prime minister and the governor general and people like that? And Nick Cave said, yeah, sure, why not? Um, and, and, and away he went. And then all kinds of Nick Cave fans were saying, how dare you? What would the young Nick Cave, this young rebellious punk, think about the old Nick Cave going to something as antiquated as a coronation? And he wrote the most brilliant reply. He just said, I don't think we should be benchmarking the views of, you know, 19-year-old idiots, you know? And he said, you know, my, my, my former self was absolutely a, he was cute, but he was deranged. <laughs> and why should we benchmark the views yeah. of the 19-year-old? And yet the, the reason why we do that is because we've all come to believe in progress. And if you believe in progress, then, then the future is golden and the past must be regressive and the past must be dark and unenlightened and all those sorts of things. And it's, it's kind of the inheritance of Christianity because Christ Christianity has a very hopeful view of the future. And it says that we can reform the evils of yesterday and, and we can head somewhere good. But when you detach progress from the death and resurrection of Jesus and from the great story that gave that meaning, then we just wipe out the past and we just, we just dismiss it as a dark ages, it's unenlightened, it's regressive. But here's a really interesting aspect of that. If I were to say, what, what do I think is a defining feature of our age? I would say one of them is a lack of hope in the future. Yes. You know, we keep yep. reading stories about I don't know whether you've had the spat of these in Australia, in Britain, but we have in Australia. Um, there's been a whole slew of them, stories about young men having vasectomies because they never want to bring children into such sure. a dark world that's yes. without hope, yes. that's obviously on the way to yes. oblivion and a mess. Yes, yes. So yes. the modern version, you know, so there's no hope to be found in the past. Yes. Seems to have left us in a position where we're saying there's no hope in the future. Yes, and at that stage, you've, you've got these two competing views of progress, and I think... You know, Martin Luther King Jr. You know, talked about the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And we all imagine that he's meaning an arc that's a bit like a rainbow and it sort of goes up and, and touches down in, into the future. And we are the ones that we've been waiting for and we've got this Messiah complex of, of being able to bring it about. I think what Martin Luther King took from the scriptures um, was actually a very different shape of progress, that you actually have to go down into struggle and sacrifice and self-giving love, and then you're raised up in the end by God. And that's the kind of that's the kind of progress that I think a Christian message would give to us. I think we are the heirs of a very different godless kind of sense of progress that is actually a tragic view of the world, um, but we still manage to you know, maintain our own expressive individualism that you know, we are the ones that we've been waiting for, we are the Messiah, we are the answers to this problem. But because we've also inherited this tragic view that you know, the heat death of the universe will just extinguish all things. Um, that, that's why I think our modern view of progress casts us still as the heroes, and we're still much better morally than our you know, grandparents were. Um, and yet, as you say, there's, there's no future. And, and so you know, antinatalism is just a heartbeat away, I think, from our, our, our modern culture where people say it would be better not to have children because of the carbon footprint and because of the, you know, the suffering and evil of this world. And all of that is because we don't have a meaningful vision for self-giving love. We don't have a meaningful vision for, for sacrifice and actually going down into the darkness, which I think is what, what Jesus would, would teach us. Uh, there's been some fascinating work done in America, as I understand it, reported in the Wall Street Journal, showing that American patriotism has basically halved over the last 25 years. Yeah. Um, belief in re as religion in religion is important is basically half. Yeah. But the really staggering one in that same survey uh, published in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, as I mentioned, um, was that um, 
those who Americans who think that children are important has gone from around 70% to 30%. Right. So more than two out of three Americans no longer believe that children are important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't stop us using them in the culture wars, by the way, to try no. and advance our no. view of the world. Yeah, yeah. And we're having so many fewer children. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, the replacement rate is, is, is 2.1. And, uh, you know, among certain religious communities, that, that's, um, that rate is above the 2.1. But... Uh, even among religious Westerners, it's still below the 2.1 rate. It's, it's about 1.3 for agnostics and about 1.6 for atheists. And, and, and I, I think there is a correlation between your view of the future and, and, and whether you want to invest right now in the costly business of raising the next, next generation or not. And it, it, it seems like our answer is uh, not so much. So, you know, as a former legislator, this is a really interesting point. Because what they're actually going to do is, it, there's an element of sort of self-fulfilling prophecy about this. It is going to make the future much more difficult. Mm. The West is only now starting to wake up yeah. to the very serious problems Absolutely. that low birth rates are actually going to present. Funnily enough, China is leading the pack yes. and it'll be a massive problem for China. Yeah. But yeah. the number of guest workers that will be required and how they're ever going to be paid for is beyond me yeah. because there won't be many taxpayers as Western societies age is absolutely staggering. Yeah. So the lack of belief in children as part of our future is going to bear surprisingly bitter fruit. Absolutely. And it's, it's going to shift you know, global politics in, in incredible ways, because at the same time as China's birth rate is, is, is tanking, the church is growing you know, like, like gangbusters. By, by the end of, the, of, of this decade, there'll be more Christians in China than there are in the U.S., and if some of those, you know, um, trajectories keep, keep going, there might be uh, as many as 50% of China's Christian by 2060. That seems to me like a, a, a bonkers kind of statistic. But people, people who understand these things better than I do kind of talk about that. And even if it's nowhere near that, I think the, the demographic shifts around the world and the spiritual shifts around the world mean that life in 2060 will be unimaginably different from today. Mm. Let's get into some really hard issues for you and me as Westerners both Australian, both familiar with England, you live here. Uh, and uh, we've now got a view emerging, whereas once, not so long ago, even if you didn't go to church, you thought, broadly speaking, Christianity was true, it was the right way to live. Then it was just one of many truths. Now, of course, you shouldn't subject your children to it because it's harmful. Mm. Uh, we've gone from being the good guys, perhaps a bit painful and what have you. But <laughs> Ned Flanders, basically. Yeah. Kind of, now yeah, yeah. we're the problem. Yes, right. And... On the sensitive issue then of um, sexuality and gender identity, hmm. how has this happened and, and <clears throat> why is it such a serious misunderstanding hmm. uh, of things that are essentially good, if I can bring yeah. my own position here? Yeah. Well, we've got the clash of two different sexual revolutions going on. Um, when you say the sexual revolution, most people think of the 1960s, the swinging 60s. But historians like Kyle Harper will, will say that the real sexual revolution that has still built the moral foundations of the West happened 1900 years earlier. And in the early church, here come some Christians who are taking very seriously what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, in which he absolutely obliterates the double standard in, in terms of sex. In the ancient world, there was an unapologetic double standard. You know, elite men could possess the bodies of anyone they pleased whenever they wanted to. And, and so this was a terrible culture for women and children and slaves and prostitutes and concubines. And, and, and Jesus absolutely abolishes the double standard by saying men must be as restricted as women had always been expected to be. And so they must be chased outside of marriage and faithful within marriage. And, and that 
kind of brought an equality to the sexes and it tamed and restrained male sexuality, um, which when it runs wild is one of the most dangerous forces in, in the world. But somehow, uh, in, in the words of uh, evolutionary biologist uh, Joseph Henry, he said the church reached down and grabbed men by the testicles, you know, and, and he was basically saying he, they restrained and trained male sexuality and the church and its sexual revolution absolutely transformed the world out of all recognition. Joseph Henry's book is called The Weirdest People in the World, and he, he traces pretty much all the psychological peculiarity and the prosperity of the West to the Christian sexual ethic of the early centuries. Now, we've also got this other sexual revolution of the 1960s. And in a, in a sense, if the first sexual revolution said that men must be as restricted as women have always been, through the technology of contraception, the, the 1960s say, well, women can be as liberated as men have always been. Um, but a lot of feminists, such as Louise Perry, are pointing out that this is not for the good of society in general, and it's not for the good of women even. And so she's written this, this uh, fantastic book that's also a bit of a gut punch called The, the, the Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And, and she talks about the, the costs of taking male sexuality and making the whole world again dance to the tune of male sexuality, which is, which is how she characterizes the, the sexual revolution of the, of the 1960s. And I, I think what we see is um, breakdown of family and, and the, the, the bursting apart of sex and marriage and sex and pregnancy and pregnancy and children and children and family. And these things have just been absolutely cast adrift from one another. And the consequences in, in, in our culture are just vast. So then you fast forward to, to something like the, the Me Too movement. And I think right there, you've got this really interesting interaction between the ancient sexual revolution of Jesus and, and the modern sexual revolution. Because a, a Harvey Weinstein, if you take him back to Rome, what would you call him in the context of Rome? He's, he'd be a senator. He'd, he'd be, you know, business as usual. But it's, it's a particularly Christian thing to say that men should restrain their sexuality and that we should treat women and children with dignity and respect as equals and we should honor their bodily autonomy and we should we should um and power should be used to serve rather than to exploit and all those sorts of things and so what we've got in our culture a very interesting clash of christian sensibilities about sex because we we still recognize that sexual abuse is in, in, egregious a desecration why do we think that well because we've got this idea that sex is sacred and bodies are more like temples than playgrounds. And at the same time, we've got this very hedonistic, kind of nihilistic sense that liberation is the way towards greater happiness. And those, those two things are kind of clashing all the time. And, and Christians are here for when that freedom thing and that so-called liberation thing falls apart. And I think Christians are here to say, look, when you recognize that that's not working, when you recognize that that has unleashed a, a voracious male appetite in, into the world that has been uh, that, that has been for the detriment to the detriment of, of this world. When when you're ready to kind of be a refugee from that sexual revolution, we will take all comers, no matter your sexuality, no matter your patterns of inclinations. Come to this sexual revolution, which is different. It's very different. It says one man, one woman for life. That is the context for sex. And, and if you don't like that option, then chaste singleness is an even greater option. So. But those are your options. And people say, oh, that's so restrictive and regressive. And Christians are here to say, um, it has built our world. There is wisdom here. 
And when you're ready to recognize the sinking sand over there, you know, you're, you're welcome over here. I think a lot of young people would react very strongly to what you just said. Mm -hmm. They would say, I think, firstly, uh, how can you possibly claim that Christianity is not oppressive uh, in terms of the feminist argument that Christianity stands behind the idea of women being submissive to men? Mm. That's the first objective. Mm -hmm. And I'm I guess, not buying that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess what I'm doing with all your questions is sort of questioning the question yep. in that what, what is the moral framework that is telling us that men and women are equal. And I absolutely yeah, believe that men yeah. and women are, are entirely equal. And I want to ask where, where has that idea kind of come from? Um, and you know, on, on the issue of has, has the church been um, egregiously patriarchal in the worst sense of the word? Has it, has it been you know, egregiously unequal in, in, in some of its things? Absolutely. And I own that sort of, sort of throughout the book. Uh, my, my sort of technique in the book is basically to take whatever objections that come, take them very seriously, to stand shoulder to shoulder with the person who's you know, accusing the church, to point my finger to, to say it's worse than you ever thought. <laughs> but then at some stage to say, and what are we standing on yep. as yep. we say this? Yep. Why, why do we recognize it? Why do we recognize the equality? Yeah. Um, Where did that idea come from? Yes. And, it's no, not and just, a lot of yeah. young people would say, well, that's got nothing to do with Christianity. It's just the way we are. It's the way we think. Or... The other version of that is all faith systems say that. <laughs> well, um, I mean, you know, Afghanistan, um, the Taliban come and take over, and and we scratch our heads and we and we wonder how can they do that? How can they, you know, be in, so incredibly unenlightened as to not want to educate their children? That sort of thing. Well, where do where do we think those ideas come from? That they are not universal. When you said enlightened, uh, yeah. a lot of people would say the Enlightenment. Yes, again, and I would say, where does that come from? Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of my friends have, they, they have a, a kind of a creationist account of history where there were long ages of darkness, you know, all was, you know, without form and without, you know, all was void and without form and darkness and emptiness. And, yeah. and then God said, let there be Immanuel Kant and there was enlightenment. And all of a sudden there's this incredible sort of burst of um, equality and the liberal, you know, values that we all kind of have. That's an incredibly creationist account that, that really, is that how history works? Nothing, 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 and then everything. Um, I happen to believe in an evolutionary view of history, right? That actually over the course of centuries, we've been inventing the individual, as Larry Seedentop, a political philosopher put it, you know, the, the whole idea that Immanuel Kant could look at the world and say, we should all treat one another as equals and, and, and have his categorical imperative is because we have been thinking in profoundly theological terms about who humans are, made in the image of God, with souls, and invited into this family as brother and sister, in which there's no, no Lord except Jesus. And, and it has been a profoundly Christian insight that has given us things like human rights and, and the idea of equality and this compassion ethic that we all take for granted now. And the Enlightenment used those raw materials, absolutely. Um, but I would, I would say be more curious about the views that we have and where we've, where we've got them from. All right, now to come to the second thing I was going to touch on there. So a young person hearing uh, the idea that actually limiting sexual freedom is a key to freedom itself. Yeah. Yes. That, that license yes. often kills freedom. Yes. And yes. I think you'd have to say there's enough research around now to say the sexual revolution has hardly produced a lot of happiness. No. It hasn't yet, even produced a lot of sex. Right. That's, there's an irony in that. We know that. Yeah. We know that from yeah. the research. Yeah. But we don't think 
with our heads on these issues. We think with our hearts. Right. So it's all about autonomy, isn't it? I mean, right. it's all about radical autonomy. I will determine who I am. Right. You know, I feel so I am. Yeah. And I'll determine even my sexuality yeah. and sex. Yeah. No one else will do it for me. The thing that troubles me about that is that all the evidence is mounting rapidly. It doesn't result in human flourishing. No. No, it really doesn't. And it reminds me of that, that famous story that Jesus told about, you know, a man has two sons and the younger boy says, I want your inheritance now, not when you die. And, you know, he, he should have been given a, a, good, uh, a good beating for, for saying that to his dad. You don't say that in those ancient cultures. Well, it would have been a death sentence. It would have been a I death sentence. It. Yeah. And instead, the father yeah. is incredibly gracious and hands him over to what he has desired. And so this younger brother goes off to the far country and he squanders his wealth in wild living and he ends up in the, in the pigsty. You know, he went for the partying and eventually the money runs out. The money always runs out. That, that capital always runs out. And I, I, I wonder whether this is a story of the, of the West as well in terms of taking the inheritance of thousands of years and spending it in wild living and we kind of end up in a, in a pigsty. And of course, there he comes to his senses. And he recognizes that, you know, even, even the servants in the household eat better than he does in the pigsty. And he, and he goes home and he receives the most radical welcome of, 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 of love. You know, his father comes and runs to him and hugs the boy and kisses him and kill the fattened calf. And they have the, they have the feast because, because God in the story is always ready to, to, to welcome home the prodigal. But it's a profound story about what that prodigal thought would bring him happiness. And what he thought would bring him happiness was independence. And, and, and that's just not how humans operate. You know, the, the goldfish might think that they are more free if they are outside of the fish tank, but spluttering around on the carpet, they don't find more freedom. And I think, what if we are made for God? And what if we are made for interdependence in that sense? We won't find greater happiness by, by seeking independence from that. Personally, I'd have to say that and there are, I know, many leading atheist thinkers who would say this. Not knowing those biblical stories is really limiting people's imaginations and understanding of our own culture. Yep. I mean, the parable, it's called the parable of the, of, of, of the prodigal son. It's right. really two sons and a gracious father. Right. It's an Correct. astonishingly powerful story. Yes. Which reflects staggering wisdom and insight. Yes. Yes. And we just behave as though we know better. Yes. But you can't learn from yeah, yeah. the scriptures. And, and I just think we are inhabiting those scriptures in so many ways. I mean, we've yeah. been built by these stories that Jesus told, which have profound wisdom to them. You know, just a few chapters earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus does the, the Good Samaritan. You know, and the parable of the Good Samaritan has absolutely built the West in our moral sensibilities. Yeah. You know, a guy is left for dead. The priest and the Levite walk on by and we all know that's the wrong thing to do. You know, yeah. you're meant to show compassion. You're meant to intervene. Yeah. And the Good Samaritan comes and he does what we know you ought to do nowadays. And in a sense, that has built the moral sensibilities of the West. We, we all know that we should be compassionate to those who are weak and marginalized. And those on the right think that that should be the, the role of private charity. And those on the left think that that should be welfare state. And, and, and we, you know, we battle it out about how we be the Good Samaritan. But without understanding that Jesus is the Good Samaritan, actually, uh, we kind of divorce 
these these virtues of compassion and equality and they they run amok as, as gk chesterton said we've got these christianized or christian-ish virtues that are now run amok divorced from the christian story and now compassion is yield is wielded as this sort of cudgel to beat people down and and instead of wanting to help victims uh, now there's a race to be the victim competitive victimhood yeah. has become this thing where, where does the cachet of being a victim come from it comes from the Jesus story, but you detach it and divorce it from the Jesus story, and now compassion just floats free as this hashtag. And you know, you've, you've never met such cruel people in the world as those who, who tweet hashtag be kind, right? It's kind of, it's, and you know, tolerance is used to be intolerant, and liberality is used to be illiberal, and compassion is used to be cruel to people, because we've, we've learnt the vibe that Jesus has taught us, but we haven't actually gone deeply into the scriptures to be formed by them and actually have these properly Christian virtues. And without that, we're seeing what we see in the world today. Some of the superficiality of this is quite extraordinary. I mean, we're mm -hmm. blessed with very powerful minds, really. Mm -hmm. We can think. <laughs> Some can, yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that strikes me, we've got a debate going on in Australia where if you happen to disagree with a certain set of proposals, you're banded you're branded as a racist. That's the ultimate insult. Right. You're a racist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you see that right across the West, Black Lives Matter and what have you. I would put it to you that racism is a detestable thing, but it's just one of a variety of problems that stem from hatred of other human beings. Right. And that many of those who bandy the term racist around are in fact displaying an extraordinary amount of hatred themselves. Yeah, and, and again, this is why I say sort of Christianized and Christianish virtues have been detached from the story and have run amok. Because Jesus taught us that the good Samaritan can be the good guy, right? And he's he's speaking into this incredibly, you know, because Samaritans were hated. They, they were, were this hated other they tribe. They were the lowest. They were the lowest. They were the other guys. They were a different race, different ethnicity, different religion. And Jesus like casts this guy as the good guy. And so, it, you know, where do we get the idea from that racism is a terrible sin? Again, it's Christianity that has taught us this this kind of thing. But it's taught us in in this rich way. The Bible says, you know, there's a difference between the flesh and the spirit. And you know, the spirit is to go the way of Jesus, self-sacrificial love that God might raise you up. The way of the, the flesh is self and self-aggrandizing and, and building yourself up. And obviously the most surface level expression of investing in the flesh is to take pride in your skin color, to take pride in your ethnicity. That is the most vulgar form of the flesh. And absolutely it, it's an abomination you know, to, to be racist. But there, there's such depth and such subtlety to the ways in which we can be selfish so-and-sos and ruin the world. Um, if we just have this surface level understanding of, of just racializing everything, I don't think we'll go deep enough into the problems that, that, that are much more than skin deep. You have argued that secularism or the divide between faith and secularism mm. is actually a Christian concept. Sure. Whereas most people would think now secularism is an ideal in itself and it's anti-Christian and it's a good thing mm -hmm. to use to argue that Christianity should be kept out of the public square. What do you mean by saying it's actually a Christian concept in the first place? It's another one of those things that you recognize that Christianity is the air that we breathe because we think it's natural to divide the world into the religious and the secular. That's not the way. That's not the way ancient peoples thought. It's not the way that modern non-Christian peoples think. Um, you know, think of, the, think of the British Raj in India coming across the, the citizens of Hindustan and saying, oh, they've got a religion. And your average Indian at that stage says, what's a religion, right? 
well, you've got holy men and holy books and, and rituals. And they're like, yeah, but that's just woven into the warp and woof of life. Where do we get the idea that there's this, there's this one sphere that's called the sacred and there's this other sphere called the secular? Um, and really, it's a theological concept. You could trace it back to, for instance, Jesus picking up a coin and saying, you know, whose, whose head is on the coin? Caesar's. Okay, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And there's this sort of separation of the civil realm and the, and the sacred realm. You come through into Augustine, he talks about the city of God and the city of man. You come through medieval theologians and they start developing this very um, intricate system in which, yes, there is the Pope and there's sort of church authority and there are kings. And you know, by the time you get to the 11th century, you've got Henry IV in 1077, you know, cast out, excommunicated by the Pope and he has to go and grovel to the Pope. and. You know, it's, it's this system in which the church and the state are quite distinct realms. And actually, it, it's medieval theology that gives us this sense that there is the secular, which is sort of the bounded uh, time frame of this generation, uh, the next hundred years, the, 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 the secular world, and there's the sacred, the things, the things of eternity. Now, fast forward, and we now, you know, we love the fact that there's a separation of church and state and all these sorts of things. But these, these ideas have real... Uh, there's a genealogy to these ideas. And when you step outside of the Christianized West, you come to a place like India now, and you know, Modi is saying, well, to be, to be an Indian is to be Hindu, right? Where do we get this idea of the secular? You know? and, and Indian politics is kind of this, this now, this sort of reaction against, you know, Gandhi kind of founded the nation as this secularized nation. Christianity has had a massive impact on India. Um, not simply through, and not even mainly through Christian evangelization, but actually through secularization. And now there's the overturning of those presuppositions, and now people are saying, well, to be Indian is to be Hindu, right? And with what logic are we going to answer that claim? Or, or you come to Turkey and then Erdogan, and, and you know, to be Turkish is to be Muslim, right? And with what logic are we going to answer that claim and say, oh, no, you know, you're a secular ruler and, and people can have their private religious beliefs. Where do we get those ideas from? They, they absolutely come from a, a very Christianized understanding of things. And even to talk about Christianity and religion and even to talk about secularism is to talk in a particularly Christian register. So you're painting a picture, essentially, if I can put it this way, that the two... Christianity recognises, if you like, the place of the secular, the place of the sacred. Uh, but it doesn't argue for a moment that they should not cross-fertilise. They should True. work cooperatively, yes. whereas today they're set up as opponents. Yes, yes. And the state plainly is seen as superior in the minds of many modern Westerners. Yes, yes. To the church. Yes, the separation of church and state is <clears throat> not the separation of religion and politics. Because... Every politician has a theological view, actually, because they, they have a view It'd about... It'd be a surprise to many of them. <laughs> it, it would. It would. And, and yet, maybe they just need to read my book, John. <laughs> In terms of our concept of human rights, for instance, like where, where do we get this understanding that, that, we, you know, that our societies are a collective of individuals who, by their own individual consents are equal individuals in the eye of the law. Like, like, where do we get this understanding? It's a secularized theological vision of male and female born in the image of God, right? From, from Genesis chapter one. And, and to, to even have 
these most basic ideas about freedom and equality and progress and compassion is to be immersed in profoundly theological concepts. Even if we've anonymized the theology, even if it's invisible to us, we are carrying on theological conversations. And I often say the culture wars, people are just hurling Bible verses at each other. We've just forgotten the references. Um, and we, that's why we really need to get back and that's become an educated thing to, say. to be informed by the scriptures. Yeah. yeah, We don't know where a lot of our precepts, even detailed ideas come oh, from. Yeah. Oh, completely. I mean, think about something like just war versus pacifism. Mm. In, and, you know, in British Parliament, you'll get people every now and again standing up and somebody says, we should bomb so-and-so. And somebody else says, no, we should never use you know, military force in those sorts of things. And, and essentially, you know, people are having a conversation between Romans chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 5. It's just people don't understand. <laughs> and the entire just war tradition is kind of an argument inside Augustine's head, this North African theologian of the fifth century. So we are always profoundly theological. And that's why I think it's quite dangerous that people are not theologically educated because we're carrying on these conversations that have a real pedigree and a real history to them. But if we're ignorant of that history, we're going to have these Christianized, Christian-ish virtues running amok. Well, now let's be frank, and you've alluded to this, but I'd like to tease it out a little bit more. <clears throat> Many listening to this conversation would say, oh, come on, you know, I mean, how can you be serious? Look at the Inquisition, look at the way they treated Galileo, look at the way uh, you've had abuse of minors in the church, which always frustrates me because the even more dangerous place to, to be, as we know today as a child, is in a blended family. Mm. We have gone a non-biologically related male in the household. We know that. Mm. And it's just airbrushed out. Mm. But leaving that aside, mm. so you have got this sort of quite blanket accusation of massive hypocrisy, so bad that we don't think you've got any right to claim, you know, that we should listen use the word hypocrisy. And again, I'm going to say, you know, on what basis do we think hypocrisy is the worst thing in the world? It's a, it is a particularly Western thing. I mean, um, Joseph Henrik in his book, The Weirdest People in the World, talks about the psychological peculiarity of those in the West. Um, we tend to think that, of course, you should have complete integrity between the way that you act as, you know, in your private life and the way that you act in public life and uh, the way you act in one circumstance and another circumstance. Um, that's that's not a universal and the idea of hypocrisy was again given to us by Jesus I mean he he used a word that in Greek just meant masked actor and he applied it to the religious leaders of his own day and it was absolutely dynamite to say you know those guys in long flowing robes actors the lot of them you know absolutely dynamite they are they are hypocrites and since then he has taught the world uh, a quite understandable sensitivity to fakery and to this idea of being a whitewashed tomb, which is the terms that, that, that he used. We, we mustn't use virtue to be a signal into the world that masks a different reality underneath. And so hypocrisy is a, is a terrible crime. And when people bring up hypocrisy, such as sex abuse scandals in the church, um, I think the, the first move is to absolutely own that and say that's uh, utterly egregious. And to stand with the accuser and to say, you know, and at times it's even worse than you think, but let's look at the ground that we're standing on. As, as we say that sexual abuse is, is dreadful, what we are actually affirming is that sex is a sacred thing. Because if it wasn't a sacred thing, then it's kind of a no harm, no foul type situation, isn't it? If sex is simply a leisure activity, then 
you know, it, you know, if I force a game of tennis on somebody, I'm just weird. If I force sex on somebody, I'm a rapist. And we know the difference. We know the difference between tennis and sex, between a leisure activity and something that is sacred, that's holy. And when it goes wrong, it's a desecration. So to stand four square on the evils of child sexual abuse is to say that sex is sacred, that bodies are more like temples than they are like playgrounds. And again, we know that because when you fall over in the playground and gash your knee, that's one kind of thing. But when sex goes wrong, there are, there are wounds that go incredibly deep. And our culture, as Louise Perry points out in her excellent book, our culture is speaking out two sides of its mouth on the issue of sex. It's, it's on the one hand saying sex is nothing. And when it goes wrong, it's, it's everything. And she was working in a rape crisis center and asked herself, well, which is it? And if you work in a rape crisis center, you know the answer. The answer is, it's not nothing. It's an incredibly sacred thing. And bodies are more like temples than they are like playgrounds. And power should not be used to exploit the marginalized and the weak. It should be used to serve the marginalized and the weak. And so the egregious evil of child sexual abuse within the church is, my, my argument is not that that is not so bad, all things considered. My, my argument is that the reason why we recognize how egregious that is, is because of some profoundly Christian foundations about what sex and sexuality is. And so I, I use the analogy in the book of, of the crooked line versus the straight. When you see a crooked line, C.S. Lewis used, used this argument. He said, when you see a crooked line, you only know it's crooked because you've got, you've got an idea of the straight. If there was no such thing as a straight line, there'd be no such thing as crooked lines either. Lines would just be lines. Things would just be messy. But when you look at child sexual abuse, for instance, you are seeing something that is wrong. It's crooked. Well, if it's crooked, what is the straight line? If it's wrong, what is right? If it's evil with a capital E, what is it that's good with a capital G? And I would say at that point, you are testifying in this strange way to the goodness of the, of the Christian revolution, which is not to absolve the church of its sins. It's actually to convict the church of its sins, but then to say, by what standard are we saying this? And again, you can do the same with Galileo. You can do the same with the Inquisition. You can say, is the Inquisition wrong? Absolutely, it's wrong. Um, you might want to bust some myths about what people thought went on with the, with the Inquisition, and, and there are a lot of myths out there. But a bit like the Crusades. Very much like the Crusades. Well. Very much like the Crusades. Mm. Um, but at, at some stage, you've got to say, ah, yeah, no, that was an improper uh, mixture of church and state. Mm. Right? At some stage, well, what is the proper mixture of church and state? Because what do you call the Crusades when they are executed under any other banner than the cross? Mm. Okay, what do, you, what do you call it? When, uh, when Alexander the Great has his conquests, when Julius Caesar has his conquests, when Muhammad has his conquests, that's business as usual. Why are the Crusades so egregious? So I, I say it's, it's, it's a good tactic to own the evils of this, to say, yeah, that's absolutely crooked, but therefore let's insist on the straight line. And I think the straight line is an incredibly Jesus-shaped straight line. So what you're really saying there is that Jesus would have condemned that behaviour of his church when it's gone off the rails. 100%. Just as he actually condemned the religious leaders. And in fact, was strung up on a cross. Right. At the insistence of religious leaders. Right. And that's, that, that is the terrible evil of the Crusades. Crusade means cross-bearer because they had the cross on, yeah. their, on their shoulders. And here they are wearing a symbol of dying for your enemies. And in the name of a guy who dies for his enemies, you're going to go out and kill your enemies. That, that is the egregious evil of what they're doing. And, and so it, were the Crusades worse than what Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or Muhammad or Julius Caesar ever did? No. I mean, numerically, much smaller. But the hypocrisy is greater because we should know better. If we bear the sign of the cross, then we should die for our enemies, not kill them.
There's an old-fashioned word called sin that we don't use much mm. anymore. Mm. Um, Jonathan Haidt, uh, in his book, The Cobbling of the American Mind, says one of the three great mistakes we're making with our children, often well-intentioned, but we're making it. We're teaching them that life is a struggle between good people and bad people. So we still have the concept of good and bad and good right. people and bad people. But it seems to me that we've lost an idea of what biblical sin is and the fact that we are all guilty of it. So you right. go back to the story of the prodigal son. Right. The older son looks like he's a goody teacher, <laughs> but actually yeah. he's not either. Right. They've both got the same problem. Right. Yeah. So people would say this antiquated idea of sin, does it matter? And isn't yeah. it really a battle between good people and bad people? Oh my goodness. That's the, that's the danger. When you abandon this old-fashioned view called original sin, you actually get the culture wars because um, or original sin is this uh, idea that we're all born into the human family. And just as genetically I'm born with all sorts of diseases and predispositions to diseases and there will be deletions in my genetic, genetic code and I don't want my genome mapped. Because you look pretty healthy to me. Well, but that's why I don't want to do the, 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 the mapping of my genome because it might say there's a ticking, ticking time bomb somewhere <laughs> and you know, you've only got a few years left. We all know that, we all know that there's a problem biologically with us all. And the Bible is, is just realistic enough to say, oh yeah, and there's a spiritual and moral problem with us all too. And just as I'm not born a pristine, pure biological specimen, I'm not born a pristine, pure spiritual or moral specimen. We're born into this world as mixed bags. And some of us express our sin like the younger brother did in that story. And it's all sort of the, the, the wild parties and the, and the wild living. Others of us are these incredibly proud, righteous people um, who try to climb the ladder rather than throw off all the shackles, but all of us are sinners. And I think it's absolutely vital for our culture to rediscover this doctrine of original sin because essentially in the 1960s, we kind of cast off that idea that all of us are born sinful because we've sort of bought into this liberty narrative that I'm a precious individual and you know the Disney you know, the, the Disney mantra, you know, awaken the hero within yourself and escape the shackles and, and fly off into the, into the sunset. That has been um, absolutely catastrophic for our culture because it, it then means that we still have a notion of righteousness. And so what are we going to do with our self-justifying hearts? Well, we're going to cast ourselves as the heroes and the other guys must be the baddies. And we're going to overturn what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. You know, the, the line between good and evil is not between cultures, but it runs down the middle of every human heart. And, and we've got this, this sense that within me, there is good and evil that is sort of battling it out. And we absolutely need a rediscovery of this or else we'll just, we'll torch the world, I think. Yeah, I, I must say from a personal perspective, I'm absolutely convinced that we need to hold two things in tension, both of which have been washed out in this sort of new approach to morality and right and wrong. One is that we all bear the image of God and have worth and dignity on an equal basis. That is the ultimate source of the idea of equality, I would have thought. Yeah. And the other is, though, that we're all deeply flawed. Right. And without an understanding of both of those doctrines, right. in the end, I don't believe, I really genuinely don't believe democracy can survive. No, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's an incredibly democratizing belief mm. to believe in original sin. And, and people might not like the, the phrase. I was doing a talk in uh, uh, a restaurant up in uh, York and a guy afterwards um, said to me, I liked what you said, but you came dangerously close to that medieval view called original sin. And uh, to use a cricketing term, I just sort of let that one go through to the keeper. Didn't, didn't, didn't play at that delivery. 
the conversation moved on and very, very shortly he told me um, he's just been in rehab for 18 months after a cocaine addiction. And, uh, and he, he said to me, he's, he's been clean um, uh, for the last couple of years. And, and, and he said, um, I've got a theory. I reckon we're all addicted. He said, um, maybe your addiction is fame or sex or money or power or career. My addiction was cocaine, but everybody's addicted to something. And I said, I really like your theory. Should we give it a name? And he said, what do you reckon? I said, I don't know. Let's, let's call it universal addiction, shall we? He said, okay, universal addiction. I believe in that. I said, so do I. And that is the doctrine of original sin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're, we're all made for something more. We're all giving ourselves to things that are unworthy of us. And we're all looking for love in the wrong places. You know, that's, that's, that's what original sin basically says. And I think rediscovering that I am, I am broken in that way. And you're broken in a slightly different way, but we're all broken. I think that, that should help us to, to have more human and humane conversations with one another. Yeah, I believe that's really important. But now let's come on to um, something that I, I don't think I'm misrepresenting uh, uh, Richard Dawkins when he talks about the idea of uh, you know, a cosmic child abuse, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. If he's innocent, he shouldn't have to die. And he would have a view, I think, that uh, we haven't done anything terribly wrong. We don't think God exists anyway. Where does this idea of, though, uh, Jesus taking our sins mm-hmm. come from? And mm-hmm. can we really believe that idea? I, I think it's a, it's a little bit like I, I was in northern Nigeria just as Boko Haram were kicking off. And I, I was teaching uh, a whole bunch of pastors. A lot of young people wouldn't know Boko Haram. So Boko Haram, uh, an Islamic fundamentalist. I'm not being rude about young people. I'm just saying history <laughs> yeah, yeah. moves on. Yeah, lots yeah. Of, yeah. so Boko Haram uh, means that Western education is forbidden. That's literally what the word Boko Haram means, as an Islamic fundamentalist terrorist organization, really. Um, very prominent in northern Nigeria and lots of burning down of churches and kidnapping of children. And, and uh, this was going on. Uh, and it was really kicking off about 15 years ago, and it's, it's still a, a major, major problem in northern Nigeria today. And uh, I'd, I'd never heard of them. I was sort of teaching these church leaders uh, some New Testament stuff, and I just decided to take a walk in the market. And uh, I just took one turning, and there was a hand on my shoulder, and it was one of my students. And he said, don't go down there. And I was like, oh, right. And, and as he turned me around, he started telling me the stories of Boko Haram. He started telling me the stories of um, the churches that had been burnt down and, and, and all kinds of uh, unrest and things. And I didn't know the dangers that I was in until a friend of mine put his hand on my shoulder and says, don't go that way. And I, I think, you know, humanity is a little bit like that. We're wandering around <laughs> thinking that we're basically OK. Jesus is that hand on the shoulder. <laughs> and if he has to descend to that depth of the cross in order to rescue us, then I guess I must be in trouble. If he, if he is going to go through that, then I guess there really is a serious problem with humanity. And I can understand why people go through life and we're, you know, we're always bent towards self-justification. So the, the idea that I'm a sinner is never a welcome idea. But I think when you have that hand on your shoulder <laughs> and you see Jesus and what it took him to rescue us, that might be the sort of intervention that we need to wake us up and say, maybe I am a self-justifying fool. Maybe, maybe I am this sabotaging like idiot who sabotages my own happiness and the happiness of everyone around me. And, and maybe I need something drastic in order to turn me around. And, and if I trust Jesus, then I will start to, to, to consider what is it in the world and what is it in me 
that means rescue and redemption should be that drastic, should be that serious. And so, is it, I mean, is it cosmic child abuse? It's not, because here is our maker taking on our sin. You know, here is our maker taking responsibility for our, all our evil. And that's, that's just the greatest love story, isn't it? If you're in a pit, what does love do? Love joins you in the pit, right? Love says, your pit will be my pit, and your debts will be my debts, and your pain will be my pain, your struggle will be my struggle. And Jesus comes and he says, your sin will be my sin, and your curse will be my curse. And so that's, that's God taking responsibility for you and I. It's a very drastic thing, and it, and it kind of punctures our, our normal sensibilities that you know, we think of ourselves as basically okay. But when we're awakened to it, I think we can see it as the great love story, Jesus joining us in our pit. All right, well, let's get to the next tough bit. So he dies for our sins. Mm. And he's, that's the end of it. That's the end, yeah, right. But is it? <laughs> well, even, mean, even historically it hasn't been, has so it? So he takes away our sins. What yeah. does that mean? I mean, yeah. here's the extraordinary bit. You know, I've said it. You're, you have a sparkling mind, a very good mind. I've met a lot of people, so I can say that. Okay. okay. I understand you would say that he was resurrected. Absolutely. Do we really yeah. believe that? Yeah. Doesn't science say that doesn't happen? Doesn't experience tell us that doesn't happen? It's like creation. I mean, it, you know, the idea right. that it just happened in a big bang. How can you believe these things? <laughs> okay. You say and it's yeah. why does it matter? So it's not just the death. Right. Really. No, no, it's, it is not. It isn't just the death. So, I mean, it is, scientifically, we've already seen four miracles that are orders of magnitude more improbable than that carpenter walking out of a Jerusalem tomb. Okay. We've already, That's a big thing to say. Well, everything's come from nothing, John. Right. Yeah, all right, I get it. <laughs> everything's come from nothing. Everything's so come from nothing. Yeah. So, you know, I... I believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, but this is the virgin birth of the cosmos without a virgin, right? <laughs> for, for no reason, you know. Yeah. And so everything's come from nothing. Order has come from chaos, because yeah. if we have come from a giant explosion, it's the most finely tuned explosion I've ever seen. This Order is something, is, I'm interrupting yeah. again, which no, I so good. Do. But my understanding is that this, as we understand the order, the, this extraordinary order at a micro and a macro level for life to survive, mm. I understand that's something that a lot of scientists find very challenging and draws them back to the idea that it can't have been an accident. Well, it, it forces you to say, is this designed or are we part of a multiverse, right? And, and this, is, this is really a rabbit trail, but, but I mean, the problem for me about the multiverse is that it's an unscientific hypothesis because how would you test the existence of another universe that has different laws to our own? law like you can only test things that have the same laws that we have in our own universe and, and so it seems to me to be an unscientific escape from a, a distasteful conclusion <laughs> that an atheist scientist might might see a design argument and instead of going for a designer they escape that way and so we've, we've had everything from nothing we've had order has come from chaos um, life has emerged from non-life right how, how do you go from chemistry prebiotic chemistry to biology that's a, that's a big problem. It's a big issue. I happen to believe that one man walked out of a Jerusalem tomb 2,000 years ago. I, I happen to believe that the non-living Jesus became living. But the atheistic account of biology is that all life came from non-living material and without a God of resurrection to work the miracle. So we've got order from chaos. We've got not, everything from nothing, order from chaos, life from non-life. And, and then we've got you know, minds from mindless matter. How, you know, how do you go from biology to psychology, you know, again, you know, David Chalmers, an Australian 
philosopher of mind says, you know, how do you go from the water of the brain to the wine of consciousness? Well, like, I happen to believe in a miracle maker <laughs> who makes that sort of stuff possible. And so I, I would say that all of those are uh, miracles that are sort of life from the dead kind of things. And then when I look at Jesus, well, he claims to be our maker. And if he is who he says he is, it would be extraordinary if he didn't rise from the dead, if he rotted in some Jerusalem tomb. As I believe in the resurrection, it's not because I'm adding one more absurdity to my, my worldview. I'm, I am looking through the lens of this life from the dead God, and it explains what would otherwise be absurd. See, with the God of resurrection, those other four miracles are explicable, right? They're still extraordinary, but they're explicable. And so the resurrection of Jesus is not one more absurdity. It is the explanation that makes sense of what would otherwise be absurd. So that's the scientific thing. And then the history thing. I mean, why are we even talking about Jesus? Why is this the year of our Lord 2023? Why, did, why didn't Christianity die with Christ? Okay, but it didn't die with Christ. Okay, there has been the most extraordinary resurrection of Christianity. How do we account for that? And in, in a sense, my book is, is an explanation of a big bang. You know, we inferred a big bang because we saw an expanding universe and we wound back the clock and we, we said, oh, there must have been an inflation point. There must, there must have been a bang that got us going. And really, I, I look in the book at the, the expansion of the Christian universe that we now inhabit. And I wind things back. Where did it come from? It came from the first century. What was the bang? Because we've got this carpenter from Nazareth, this equivalent of a car mechanic from Ukraine, right, who was tortured to death in his early 30s after just shooting off his mouth for a few years in some backwater of a long dead empire and he towers above human civilization as Lord. How do you explain that? And, and again, the resurrection is not brought in as one more absurdity. The resurrection is a belief that makes sense of what would otherwise be absurd. Why did Christianity rise from the dead in the first century? Because Christ rose from the dead in the first century. So I, I don't see the resurrection as the absurd thing. I, I see it as something that explains what would otherwise be absurd. You would say more, I think, about the resurrection. Theologically? Yeah, yeah you would yeah. say that mm -hmm. it is what sets us free and gives us hope. Yes. Theologically, absolutely. What Jesus does in representing us, he does what love does. He takes our sin. He takes our curse. He takes our death on himself, plunges it down to the death it deserves, and comes out through the other side. And here is hope, right? There, there is a future that has been pioneered through death and curse and out the other side. And Jesus says, walk with me. And in Christ, we can have hope for that future. And again, it's that, it's that arc that goes down into the cross and up into resurrection. And, and Jesus, beyond sin and curse, says, put your hand into my hands and you are free from sin and curse and that judgment that is upon you. Put your hand into my hand and you have my spirit as your spirit. You have my father as your father. You have my future as your future. And so the resurrection gives incredible hope to us who are, you know, we're all down in here, a pit, down here in a pit. You know, we all have to, in the words of Psalm 23, we all have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus says, I'm a shepherd. I can get you through. Would you call it a love story? It is absolutely the, the greatest love story there's ever been. You know, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens is masculine in Hebrew. Works in Greek, works in all the Romance languages. He heaven is masculine. Earth is feminine. And you're meant to look at those two and think those two should get together. 
And then by the end of page one, you've got Adam and Eve as these icons of heaven and earth. And they are told to get together. And then in the Old Testament, you have God is this husband who sets his affection on his people. And then Christ comes and he says, I am the bridegroom. And then the, the whole New Testament is about how Christ, the true prince, absorbs the debts of his bride, the church, pays them off in full and gives her all his riches. And the end of the Bible, Revelation, it ends with the marriage of heaven and earth and the marriage of Christ and his people. It's absolutely a love story. It's a cosmic romance. So our culture tells our children to find themselves from within. Mm. You are who you feel you are. Right. In a sense, it's saying you're your own God. Right. I personally think that's a real problem because I don't think I'm up to being my God and I've not really met anybody else who's not a megalomaniac who thinks they're up to being yeah. their own God either. Yeah, yeah. Well, essentially, our sense of identity now is like the prodigal son, right? What does the prodigal son do? He wants estrangement from the father's house. He wants to go off in independence and find himself in freedom. And, you know, he ends up getting lost. And, you know, the modern wisdom is if you're lost, you need to find yourself, which is a ridiculous piece of wisdom, isn't it? Like if you're lost, the last person you need to find is yourself because you're lost, right? And finding a lost person is never much help. Um, if, if you find a person who is lost, they will just, you know, they, they, they will not know the way home. Why do we think that we should ask ourselves who we truly are? What we really need when we're lost is to find home. And of course, in the story, you have these, these two very different kinds of ways of getting an identity. You've got this very traditional way of being the, the elder brother. And I think a lot of people look to Christianity and think that we are just religionists who think it's just about structure. It's just about hierarchy. It's just about um, a kind of an, an institutional identity in which our humanity and our human rights kind of get lost in the shuffle. So we tend to go the, the younger brother route. But what I think you find at the end of this story is the younger brother comes home and he finds a father who embraces him. And then he's found. Then he knows who he is. He's still stinking of pig. And yet it's not that he has discovered himself. It's that he has, he has found himself to be in the embrace of someone who loves him more than he loves himself. And I think that's what we really want, because when I look within myself, there are so many different competing desires. And if I keep on looking down at this hall of mirrors, I, I just get lost. I don't need to find myself. I need to find home. And the good news of Christianity is that someone from home has come to find us. I can't think of a more perfect spot to stop. Hmm. You've been very generous with your time. I said at the beginning, I'd be interacting with a sparkling mind. I hope our viewers and listeners find the same thing. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.